Hello, and welcome to Wicked Wednesdays, your weekly podcast on sex and sexuality, with an emphasis on kink, BDSM, and poly relationships. I'm your host, Wicked Fellow, and I'm coming to you from Detroit, our new studio location. It's good to see you again. I know it's been a couple weeks, and things have been very inconsistent with the podcast. That's because I've been moving, went on vacation, and got really sick for about a week. However, here I am. It is good to be back. I spent the last week or so setting up a studio in our new house. Unfortunately, since I haven't done the soundproofing yet, I cannot film in there. So I have picked one of the quieter rooms in the house. And hopefully the sound on this won't be too bad. As I mentioned, a lot has been going on. I moved from the East Coast to Detroit. And because of the fact that I also own a cabinet shop... It takes me more than one trip to make a move like this. My household goods go first, and then I pack up the cabinet shop and move that second. So I'm actually getting ready to go back to the East Coast, load up the cabinet shop, and move that out here. I'm going to pre-record an episode to make sure that I have at least one episode in the can. We recorded an extra episode while we were in Utah. Unfortunately, the video on that didn't work, but I can release it as a podcast only, and I do think I will do that as well. So hopefully, the podcast will continue without interruption during this next leg of the move. This will also be a much shorter leg, as I know exactly what I'm doing, when I'm doing it, and when I'll be back. So for all of you out there that have been missing the episodes and have been writing me and been very encouraging, I really appreciate that. We will get back to a regular schedule. My life will be a lot easier here in Detroit as I won't be working you know, three jobs at the same time as I'm trying to put out good content, make new videos, and make a separate living at the same time. So you'll see much more consistent podcasts. You will be seeing some new material from Wicked Way Studios, which I know is kind of the foundation of this podcast and, of course, my income. For my Patreon subscribers, I cannot thank you guys enough, as always. You help make this thing happen, and you give me a lot of initiative and drive to keep putting out good content and episodes. As I mentioned previously, I do plan on releasing a Patreon-only weekly vlog. That's more of a behind-the-scenes, in-depth look at just my personal life, what's going on with the studio, etc. If you are interested in becoming a Patreon supporter... Head over to our website, www.wickedfellow.com. You can find our Patreon there, our YouTube channel, the podcast is hosted there, and of course, all the links to our sites are there as well. Before I get started on this week's episode, I wanted to make kind of a clarification on something I said a few episodes ago, and I feel like some of my listeners didn't quite understand what I was saying, and I was talking about how I get a lot of correspondence and how I feel an obligation to respond to that. And some of my long-term fans felt like the only reason that I was responding to them was some sort of obligation or, you know, duty only. And that's not really how it is. Obviously, there is a business side of all my correspondence. When people reach out to me, especially new contacts, it behooves me to write them back and keep that engagement. And I do not mind that in any way. That is kind of an obligation. However, I've also made a lot of contacts, acquaintances, and even friendships based on those online interactions. So if you reach out to me one-on-one, -on -one, either through Instagram or write me directly, there's a link on our website where you can email me directly, etc. 
I value those relationships and I value the one-on-one -on -one interaction. It's not all obligation and duty. It's the part of the job I probably enjoy the most. I've made so many acquaintances and friendships based on this interaction I have with my fans. You know, sometimes it is simply a one or two message exchange. They write and say that they appreciate the work. I write back and say thank you. And that's all I ever hear from them. But other times it's become a years long friendship with people all over the world that I enjoy talking to and I enjoy interacting with. For example, while we were on vacation, I have friends that reached out to me initially through my work and we began a correspondence with each other that became a friendship. And while we were on vacation, we all got together and celebrated New Year's together all over the world. We had people in six or seven different countries and we had a little private Zoom call and it was so much fun. It was a lot of fun to sit around with people that I'd met through this job and make new friends, meet new people, and really have that one-on-one -on -one interaction that could never have happened outside of this work. So it's not a duty or an obligation if I'm writing back to you. I don't do it unless I enjoy doing it, and I don't do it continually over a long period of time if it's not something that interests me. So absolutely do reach out to me. I enjoy that interaction. Don't feel like I'm only answering you because I have to. That's not how it works. I think part of that original statement was when people reach out to me, sometimes they expect me to jump into a physical relationship with them immediately, right? They write and they say, I really love your work. How can we meet up and be intimate with each other? That's a whole different level of physical and personal relationship. That's not impossible. I have met most of my models through that one-on-one -on -one fan interaction but it's not something that's going to happen immediately. I like to get to know the people that I'm intimate with. I like to get to know the people that I work with, especially. So it's not the kind of thing where you're going to write one week and we're going to meet the week afterwards. There's gonna be some time there where a relationship has to develop. I get that question quite a bit of, you know, how do you find your models? How do you go about bringing people into the studio? And for all of my models but one, it has happened through this medium. People reach out to me, we develop a friendship, they express an interest in modeling, and we go from there. I take a lot of those offers with a grain of salt because I get so many of them, and so few of them actually end up being people that are truly interested in working with the studio. A lot of times I think people reach out out of a sense of wish fulfillment or excitement, and that's fine. I don't mind entertaining that kind of dialogue. But if someone is serious about being a model, it takes more than a couple emails back and forth to make that happen. That's all I wanted to say about that. Do keep that correspondence coming. If you're someone that I write to regularly and we have a good relationship together, it's a genuine thing. I enjoy those conversations. Otherwise, I wouldn't do them. One more clarification that I wanted to make was that I posted on Instagram that I had gotten very sick after our vacation. I try hard to follow all the safety protocols, especially when I travel in this environment, but apparently I was not quite careful enough. And when we were in Utah, there were so many people around all the time. And because of the nature of being outdoors, but still in crowded locations, like at the bottom of a ski lift, it's very likely that I picked up something from somebody. Of course, since we live in the time of COVID, when you start to experience flu symptoms, your mind immediately goes to, you know, what if I have the dreaded COVID? So I got a test and I displayed that test, which was negative. 
And I should have made that more clear that I tested negative. I had good old-fashioned regular run-of-the-mill flu. I was sick for about a week. You can probably still hear it in my voice. I wasn't really able to talk, at least not to present as I am now, for probably the last week or so. So today's really the first day I could have made a podcast, and I'm glad to be back. I'm on the upswing. I still have a bit of congestion and sore throat and cough, but for the most part, I'm over it, and my result was negative. So all those people that sent well wishes and all the people that were very concerned that I had COVID, I did not. It was a negative test. For this week's episode, I wanted to answer a question that one of my listeners had sent in. And it was directly about the episode on humiliation, but it also plays into sadism a bit and kind of an overall question about how BDSM works. And this is something that I think people that are in the scene and play don't think about as much as people outside of the scene do. But perhaps even if you have been playing for a while, this is something that you're curious about. And that was, I had mentioned that Sometimes when you're doing humiliation play, it's very important for the recipient of that humiliation to feel like it's real and feel like it has some weight behind it, some genuine threat behind it. Otherwise, there's no real sense of excitement. There's no real sense of danger or the intensity that it takes for the people to feel that. Now, of course, sometimes humiliation play is very playful and it's very light and it's done in a playful, joking manner. But for some people, in order to get the rush from that humiliation play, they need to feel like the person that is topping them, the dom in that situation, really means the things that they're saying and that they are pressing hard on those sensitive issues. Obviously, like a lot of the play that we do, pressing too hard on too sensitive an issue can break the scene and make things too real, too intense. That's kind of a safe word moment. But straddling that line, finding the right balance between making that humiliation real and visceral and impactful and not having it be so much that you're hurting and crushing the person in a way they don't want to be hurt. Their question was, how do you do that with somebody that you would normally have a good relationship with, that you like, that you care about, that you may love? How can you be mean to somebody that you love is the question. How can you do mean things to someone that you care about? And that plays into a lot more aspects of BDSM than just humiliation play. You know, impact play, for example. How can you strike someone, cause them pain, give them that kind of stimulation to someone that you care about and that you love and that you're very tender towards outside of the play space. So for me, I'm not a sadistic person, so I don't get any gratification out of the infliction of pain on others or the humiliation on others by itself. Just doing that doesn't give me a thrill. It doesn't make me excited. And I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong if that is something that works for you. Sadism and BDSM can go well together because it's a controlled environment where the recipient of that is asking for it, wants that to happen. And for me, that's kind of the key. So to be mean to one of my partners that I care very deeply about outside of a scene, I don't do. That's not my style. It's not who I am as a person. But in a scene, 
I'm quite capable of applying very extreme stimulation, sometimes very painful or emotionally painful stimulation to them. And it does not weigh heavily on my conscious at all because I know that they have invited this type of behavior. They want this type of behavior. In many cases, they need this type of behavior from me so that they can feel fulfilled. And if that's not one of your kinks, if you don't like strong impact play or you don't like humiliation play or any of the other more extreme forms of BDSM, I understand that. But understand that for some people, it's hugely gratifying to them to receive that intense stimulation from, say, impact play. And they need to trust the person that is administering that stimulation to them. So that's where the dom-sub dynamic is very strong. The sub wants this to happen. The dom facilitates this. So for me, I can do that when it's acceptable, when it's something that the person wants, when it's something that the person is into. If they're not into it, then it doesn't do anything for me. I mentioned earlier that I don't really have any kinks. I do have a number of fetishes, but I don't have any real BDSM kinks. So I don't get off on impact play or rope play or humiliation play or any of those plays. None of those things really speak to me individually unless my partner is really into them. So if I have a partner that's super into rope play, I love it. It's exciting. It's fun because I can see the effect it's having on my partner. So whatever it is that I'm doing, that is my kink. My kink being the fulfillment of my partner. So I have no problem doing, you know, very extreme impact play on somebody hurting them in a sense, because I know they're into it and they receive fulfillment from it. And it's something that deepens and enriches our relationship. If my partner did not like impact play, if that's something they were not into, if that's something that did not turn them on, it would have no joy for me either. And I wanted to tie that into another question that I frequently get, which is how do I get my partner to be more dominant with me in the bedroom, for example? A question I get all the time. And it truly depends because as I've said before, we didn't choose to be kinky. So if your partner is just not into kink or BDSM or whatever particular kink you're into, I don't know if you can get them into it. I don't know if you can take somebody that has no interest in BDSM or finds it offensive or repulsive and shift them over to something that's fun for them to do. Sometimes, possibly, maybe, I don't know. In my experience, I've never really tried for my partners that were kinky, we did kinky stuff. I've had vanilla partners that had no interest in BDSM and I never pushed the issue with them because again, for me, I need my partner to be into it in order for me to enjoy it. So I've never been on the side of really trying to coax and pressure one of my partners into doing stuff that was counter to their natural inclination. However, as I mentioned in the episode about talking to your partners about kink and coming out to your partners about kink, etc., I do feel like as a partner, you should at least give it a shot. You should at least try it for their benefit. You don't know if it's going to be something you're into if you don't try it, for example. When people ask me, you know, I'm really kinky, but my partner isn't, how do I get them into the lifestyle? Communication, you know, t expressing to them what you're into, starting slowly, trying to bring them along kind of one step at a time, I imagine would be helpful. 
and that communication of, I enjoy this and I would like to enjoy it with you. You know, I would like you to give this a try for me. I mention that here because I think one of the objections that a partner may have is, you know, I don't want to hurt you. You know, you want me to spank you, but I don't feel right spanking you because I feel like I'm hurting you and I don't like doing that. That's why I feel like that's germane to this conversation because I think that being able to express to your partner, this is okay in this situation. I want you to spank me. I find it sexually exciting if you spank me. It's not a bad thing if you spank me in this situation. That is the consent part of it. Because I want it to happen, you're not doing something bad. And that is a conversation that, you know, obviously it's very delicate. It's something that even with all the goodwill in the world, they may not be able to overcome their inhibitions on causing you any sort of harm. And in that case, perhaps you can play kink in a different way. You know, impact play, humiliation play, those are only two aspects of kink play. There's all kinds of things you can do. There's role play. There is rope play, for example, and bondage, where you're not necessarily being harmed, you're just being restrained. And, you know, things like that are kind of entry-level BDSM. You know, I would like to play with you, but I want you to restrain my hands and blindfold me. And I want you to be in control. And I want you to be forceful with me. That may be an easier bridge to cross than I want you to get out a ruler and really paddle me and really make it hurt. That may come later. That may be something that you talk about after they're a bit more comfortable in this scene. So like a lot of the things I say in BDSM, starting slow and building up because there's always room to become more extreme. But frequently, I think people start off a bit too hard and they get a bit spooked by it and it doesn't feel right to them. And that can taint the entire experience for them and make it something they never want to do again. So light play. You don't even have to have any sort of bondage. You can simply say, for this scene, I want you to be in control and I want you to tell me what to do and I'll be very passive and I'll be very submissive to you and I will follow your instructions. And I just want to exchange power with you. I want to be submissive and I want you to be dominant. Making it clear to them that you are inviting that behavior. And you can have very finite limits on it. You can say, just for tonight, tomorrow, things go back to normal and I don't need you to be in charge and I don't want to be submissive tomorrow. But tonight, it would really turn me on and I would find it exciting if we played this way. I think that's a very easy and gentle way of ushering someone into the BDSM scene. From that foundation, you can go anywhere based on their comfort level. And as a kinky person dealing with someone that's not so kinky, you know, we respect boundaries. So you do have to respect the boundaries of your not so kinky partner. And you can't push them to do things they don't feel comfortable doing or they don't want to do. So there's kind of the rub. You can always ask, but if the answer is no, you then have to deal with that. You have to decide how important it is to you, how badly you need it, what are the bounds of your relationship. If you are in a monogamous relationship, that might be the end of the line because there's no alternative for you to experience that kink lifestyle in person anyway, outside of your relationship. If you have a poly relationship, 
you definitely have more latitude to, I don't do kink with this partner because they don't enjoy it, but this other partner, they really like kinky stuff. So I have that outlet for that particular need that I have. But I do know that not a lot of people are poly. So most frequently when someone writes to me, they are coming out of this from a long-term relationship where they have always been kinky or they have discovered their kinks. And as far as they know, their partner's not into it, or they are very hesitant to bring it up with their partner because they're afraid of a bad reaction. And I certainly understand that as I've had relationships where people did not have any interest in kink. In fact, they found it very distasteful and they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And just them knowing that I was kinky and that I had this lifestyle and that I was involved in it was a turnoff to them. And that is hard. That, that feeling of being judged for something you enjoy and that is fulfilling to you by someone who may not even understand it, you know, that really hits home. But that is how life works. Not everybody understands the lifestyle. Not everybody is open to it. And not everybody will even associate with people that are kinky. That's kind of part of the, the burden we bear for this particular lifestyle that we enjoy. So yeah, for anybody that's a long-term listener of this podcast, it will not come as any surprise to hear me say that I believe that communication is the absolute most important part of any sort of interpersonal relationship. It's the strongest, most effective tool in that toolbox. Being able to communicate with your partner, feeling safe communicating with your partner, being able to tell them your desires, your needs, your wants, without it becoming a fight, without it becoming a big, unpleasant issue. That sort of communication is essential to any sort of successful relationship, in my opinion. So my first advice is always communicate. Find a way to communicate with your partner that's effective and doesn't put them on guard, doesn't make them defensive. And in a lot of relationships, sometimes one person is much more communicative and better at communication than the other. Being able to establish that kind of free, easy, safe communication with your partner can be difficult. I know that not everybody has the same communication skills. Not everybody has the same facility with language and being able to express their emotions. And it's usually the burden of the more communicative partner, the person that's better at this, to bring along the less communicative partner. But it's also kind of incumbent upon them to make the less communicative partner feel safe and understood and help them communicate, if that makes sense. Patience is a big part of that. Disarming them a bit, making sure they understand that this is a good and helpful and productive conversation. You're not calling them on the carpet. You're not telling them that they're inadequate and that they're not meeting your needs and making them feel bad is key. It's crucial to let them know that you care about them and you want to explore this with them in a way that doesn't make them feel bad about themselves. Because as soon as someone starts to feel bad about themselves, communication tends to break down and that's where fights occur. That's where problems occur. That's where it becomes a conversation that they don't want to have and they resist and avoid, put off and do everything they can to not have that conversation. So yeah, these interpersonal communication issues, I can give broad advice. I can say, yes, it's good to talk to your partner. Yes, you should feel safe talking to your partner. Yes, you should work hard to make your partner feel heard and understood. 
but often it has to be much more precise advice that I'm giving someone on how to deal with their individual issue. And again, just to make clear, I'm just a guy on the internet. I've been in the kink scene for a long time and I've had a lot of relationships. I'm fairly good at communicating with my partners on this type of issue, but I'm not a therapist. I'm not a licensed counselor in any sort of way. I'm happy to help if I can, but I also know when the problem is beyond my ability to help with. That said, feel free to reach out to me. If thing I can do to help, if you just need an ear, if you just need to express these problems to somebody that you think will listen, I'm here and I'll do my best, but I'll also tell you if your particular problem is outside of my ability to help with. So yeah, to sum up that, the barrier to a lot of people getting involved in kink is their innate desire to not harm their partner, to not do anything mean or unkind to their partner. So granting them that permission, making it very clear that this is something you want and that you value and then you enjoy and that you find stimulating and continuing to communicate that to them, making sure that after the scene, you let them know, I really enjoyed that. This was fun for me. Let's try this again if you enjoyed it. That open line of communication, continuing to give them encouragement and letting them know that this is fun for you and you enjoy it, that can be all they need to get over that initial hurdle of not wanting to hurt you, not wanting to harm you, not wanting to do things that they may feel a little uneasy about. And that can go even as far as just being dominant with you, just being overbearing with you. Because hopefully for most people, they know that when that's not invited, when it's not consensual, being overbearing, being overly dominant, being rough with their partner, being very controlling with their partner is a bad thing. And it is if it's not consensual. It can be difficult for someone who believes that and feels that and has an innate hesitancy to be that way with their partner, letting them know that you consent to it, that you want it, that you desire it, that it's fulfilling to you, can help them get over that hurdle. So my voices are already starting to go, and this is a, a bit of a short podcast, but I wanted to get something out there this week. There'll be another episode next week. It may be that episode that's audio only, which is a Q&A with two of my partners that we made while I was in Utah. So I've got that one in the bag and I'll probably record another podcast so that I make sure I have a backup in case I'm not able to record next week or the week after. Hopefully next week I'll be finishing the second part of my move and then after that I'll be here permanently and I will not have to make any more breaks. I appreciate you guys sticking with me. I really appreciate all the fan mail that I've gotten. The fan interaction that I've got with you guys is very valuable to me and I really enjoy it. Keep those questions coming because it really helps me make this podcast and makes it something that I know is valuable to you. If I don't hear from you guys, I don't feel like I'm reaching you. So yeah, reach out to me. Don't be afraid to ask questions that you feel are, you know, basic or amateur or that you feel like you should know already. Everybody's got to start somewhere and I'm happy to answer the most extreme questions and the most basic questions when it comes to BDSM. Sometimes I work them into the podcast. Sometimes I just answer you directly. But all those questions are welcome. All right, folks. As always, consent is king. Take very good care of each other. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>